0: With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2, 5, 10, or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. This digital noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. This is Chris with Digital Noise. I'm back in the studio, and it looks like I have a caller on line one. Uh, Caller, hi, how are you doing?
1: Hi, Chris. uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, I was just wondering what home video releases were new to the market that I might enjoy in the privacy of my own home during this lockdown
0: season. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Caller, uh, what's your name? My name is John Golson. Well, John Golson, thanks for joining our show. I wondered if you might have a few suggestions yourself. Maybe you've seen some of this stuff.
1: <clears> hey, one... Well, I do. I just happen to have a full list right here. Um, uh, yes, I, yes.
0: Station I... manager, that guy's called back again. What do I do? Uh,
1: okay. Let me, let me tell you about QAnon. Uh, no, <laughs> sorry. Um,
0: Let's not talk about QAnon. Okay. Is that how you say it, by the way? I'm always like. QAnon? Quannon.
1: <laughs> that's funnier <laughs> I should start just saying it that way Quannon.
0: I mean would any of us be really surprised at this point if Q and Star Trek popped up and goes I can't believe y'all believe that shit <laughs> <laughs> oh wow that's Stupid John humans. Golson. I'm Chris Cox we're here to do digital noise boy do we have a stack of movies in front of us to talk about this week lots of stuff and let's get on it with our first one which is Okay, so this is not something normally I'd be like, oh, we have to cover this because it's brand new because this Blu-ray of Sunset Boulevard is not brand new. This is actually a straight re-release of the Blu-ray of this that came out in 2012. But the reason we're reviewing it is, A, I don't, I'm not entirely sure we've ever covered Sunset Boulevard on the show. And B, this is a really spectacular package of a Blu-ray and C, I didn't have the Blu-ray of it. (laughs) So I was like, yes, I'll take one. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Sunset Boulevard is an all time classic in my opinion. 1950 film noir, Billy Wilder, whose name strangely gets left off the list often of the all time greatest directors who's ever lived. And it really shouldn't be off that list because he was capable of pretty much any genre and was fantastic at it all. And Sunset Boulevard, some might say, was his ultimate triumph. I definitely would. And I'm. it's surprising me, John, how many people, younger people, when they're thinking of like, oh, what are the all time greatest films that you have to see? Forget about Sunset Boulevard. And not only is it one of the all time greatest films, it's probably the greatest film from Hollywood about Hollywood.
1: I had never seen this
0: oh, I'm so glad that I got it then. So you finally got a chance to see it. I had
1: never seen it. How, when did you see it? When do you think you saw it? Can you remember?
0: Uh, the first time? Jeez, oh. uh, probably over 10 years ago. And then yeah. I saw it a second time when they put it out on DVD, which was probably about five years ago. But uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I had never seen this. And I knew, you know, there's certain things, especially I think if you're a film fan. Um, and for me in particular, I grew up reading... Uh, movie line magazine um, instead of Premiere, and movie line was always high on the hog for sunset Boulevard. Like it was one of their, the writer's favorite movies. So it would get brought up a lot. And I felt like I had a, um, a good idea of what it was about. Like, Oh, I know it was about like a fading silent screen star. And she's like kind of losing her mind and succumbing to this madness of her former fame. But I didn't know that it was such a movie about the industry itself and I kind of didn't know that she's she is a main character, but that there's this other character, Joe Gillis, played by uh, William Holden, who's kind of a kind of a shithead in his own right. Like, like, uh, and it it really it was a nice surprise because I felt like I'd seen a lot of the iconic moments and and just thought that I had the context for them and really did not. I really no. didn't know what the movie was fully about. And uh it uh, was surprising and and yeah it's it's I mean it's very very good it's a classic it's very very good
0: and it's kind of meta and a early example of meta I mean that certainly I mean there's Charlie Chaplin films that have mm-hmm. self referential stuff in it but this was like in concept Gloria Swanson who plays the the reclusive hiding in her decaying mansion once the biggest movie star in the world in the silent film days person norma desmond she's basically playing herself here where she was a huge silent movie star and when the talkies started it kind of murdered her career and this was a big comeback role for her that no one expected was going to be anywhere near as big as it actually was eric von stroheim the german director who had actually worked with swanson before who also has been had been his career had sort of taken a nosedive in some ways plays her butler max who in the context of the film ends up himself having been a former film director who had directed that character and there's so many threads like that running through this that it it's the type of film that every time i watch it i discover something new
1: such a uh such a complicated toxic relationship between <laughs> norma desmond and, and max like yeah. just too complicated it's it it's complicated. It's enjoyable. I don't want to say too complicated. It might make somebody think I'm, like, saying that I couldn't wrap my head around it. It's very sticky and adds layers to the film beyond him just being, like, her humble manservant.
0: And uh, William Holden, who, you know, I normally enjoy Holden, but this is in a slightly unusual role for him. Apparently, this was originally going to go to Fred McMurray, who was... Definitely more of a standby for this sort of noir thing. Holden usually either played a straight up bad guy or a straight up ridiculously good guy. And he plays Joe Gillis, who is a Hollywood screenwriter who's really down on his luck. Nobody wants to buy his stories. He is on the run from people who want money from him because he just can't seem to sell anything. He's desperate and he's very angry and he's very bitter. He ends up hiding in norma's mansion we just literally when he's trying to get away from people chasing him in his car he pulls into this old overgrown driveway finds an empty garage the place looks abandoned so he's like oh i'll just hide my car in here only to find out that in fact this lady norma desmond lives here who kind of adopt adopts him when he's like oh yeah i'm a screenwriter and she's like here's my script which is like 700 pages. You should help me finish it so I can be the star. And Cecil B. DeMille, who also has an appearance in this film playing himself, will, who loves me, will come in and make this film and I will be a huge star again. And one of the things about this film that you're going to recognize right off the bat, because it's been referenced so many times in popular culture, is it starts with one of those, hi, I'm Joe Gillis, I'm dead now, (laughs) with him, his body floating in her swimming pool, dead, and him going, let's see how we got here. I mean, Archer did a a season that started that way. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that's been taken by popular culture here, but none of it is stuff that's going to ruin anything in the movie for you.
1: I kind of wish, you know, if I have any major criticism of the movie, I kind of wish it didn't start that way. Like I sort of, it's, I can say that now because it's very almost cliche, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that was necessarily a cliche in 1950. So it's fine that it, that it set that precedent, but I also kind of wish that the ending came out of nowhere versus it being like doubling back to the point that we find out the events that happened. One of the things I like about Joe Gillis as a character is that it's never made entirely clear if he's any good or not mm-hmm. uh, at at his actual job and it's kind of irrelevant and I think that one of the things that the movie does really well as far as his characterization is that his personality type is such that his personality type is such that it kind of doesn't matter whether he's good or not he he would he's getting in the own way of his success. So you could picture his screenplays being really good but him just being a screw up or being terrible and that's why he's in the position that he's in but that it wouldn't necessarily fundamentally change who he was whether or not he was any good at his <laughs> any good at his job or not which I found to be um, kind of interesting because I think a a movie that I think a movie would work harder to establish whether or not he was a genius who was down on his luck or was like I had a never was like a guy yeah. who couldn't write in the first place. And I, I don't, I think by not answering that, it clears a path to the heart of the character, which is that this is a guy that for whatever reason is going, it wouldn't matter if he's a screenwriter or an auto mechanic or whatever, he's going to get in the own, his own way of his success. Um, that That's kind of what I felt about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's in many ways a traditional, noir leading man for this era of noir. Uh Uh, Certainly this is the pre-Jim Thompson days of Hollywood adaptations when it went to like the super dark noir. But the idea of like this very flawed main character who is kind of the villain.
1: (laughs) He definitely makes decisions that are, uh, he's motivated by self-preservation and uh, doesn't think a lot about anybody outside of how it affects him in the given moment that is taking place, which, you know, which has ramifications, just like we talked about at the beginning of the movie. Can you call the beginning of a movie a spoiler? I don't know, but the <laughs> spoiler, the opening shot of the movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and what I talked earlier about how, There's a lot of stuff in here you'll recognize from pop culture, the most famous of which is the line, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille, which has always been played for comedy. Well, it's not funny at all when it happens in this movie. It is an incredibly haunting scene that Swanson nails in one of the single most powerful performances in the context of the whole rest of the film that probably in Hollywood history for me, as she descends the stairs with everyone looking at her and the lights on and the cameras running and the context being not at all what it sounds like. That's a really amazing scene. Yeah, it is. I agree. But there's so many extra features here. If you've never seen this, you should just blind buy this because it's a masterpiece. You're going to want to watch it multiple times. And this is definitely the essential version of this film because you'll have a lot more questions and there's a lot of interesting answers. There's an audio commentary with Ed Sikov, who's the author of On Sunset Boulevard, The Life and Times of Billy Wilder, who talks about any number of things along the the length of the commentary. There's Sunset Boulevard, The Beginning for 22 minutes, which is the Paramount Pictures producer A.C. Lyles, actress Stephanie Powers. Filmmaker Nicholas Meyer, author Ed Sikov and actress Nancy Olson talking about Billy Wilder's life work, scripts, his use of narration. Uh, Sunset Boulevard a look back for twenty five minutes, which Ed Sikov, actress Nancy Olson, critic Andrew Saris, producer AC Lyles, and actress Glenn Close speak on the themes, the original opening, which was scrapped, the filming locales, Billy Wilder's work, etc. There's the noir side of Sunset Boulevard for fifteen minutes, which is a uh, author and former LAPD Sergeant Joseph Wambaugh talks about this one of his favorite films Uh, Sunset Boulevard becomes a classic for 15 minutes critic Andrew Saris, actress Gloria Swanson author Ed Seacoff filmmaker Nicholas Meyer actress Glenn Close and actress Stephanie Powers talk about audience and critical reaction to this film its themes how it was a super dark look at Hollywood which hadn't really been done at that point there's two sides of Mrs. Swanson for 10 and a half minutes which is Gloria Swanson's granddaughter Brooke Anderson and actress Linda Harrison talking about the life and times of her there's stories of Sunset Boulevard for 11 and a half minutes with Andrew Sarris critic author Ed Zikov Nicholas Meyer director actress Nancy Olsen talk about the opening shot Olsen's work on the film Billy Wilder's scriptwriting and direction there's mad about the boy a portrait of William Holden for 11 minutes with producer A.C. Lyles actress Stephanie Powers actress N- Nancy Olsen and author jo- Joseph Wambaugh talking on Hol- Holden's life and career there's recording Sunset Boulevard for six minutes which is about the soundtrack of course the city of Sunset Boulevard five and a half minutes author Borstov Stanik talking with Ed Zikov and Nancy Olsen about the show. Shooting like locales, including the history of each location. There's France Waxman and the music of Sunset Boulevard for 14 and a half minutes. Uh, once again, about the the, the, uh, the look at the the score, which is also kind of essential and iconic. There's morgue prologue script pages, so this is the original opening, but they just have the script for it. So, like, they take a look at those pages and analyze them. There's deleted scene, a minute and a half. Uh, the Paramount don't want me blues. There's a Hollywood location map which is an interactive map with clickable icons that give video short subjects on each locale. There's behind the gate the lot with the producer and a film historian talking about the history of Paramount Pictures and the famous gate Edith Head, the Paramount years because I I don't think I have a film I've gotten in the last 5 years that Edith Head did the costumes for that didn't have a special feature about Edith Head. Like Of any costumer in the history of Hollywood, she's the only one that's like a name that everyone's like, oh yeah, Edith Head, I know who that is. Yeah, because she did all the legendary films, pretty much. Uh, Paramount in the 50s, Nine and a Half Minutes, looks back at Paramount's best films from the 1950s, including this one. There's galleries, there's a theatrical trailer. Yeah, this is a stuffed package for a Blu-ray that itself, the hard copy of it, is kind of bare bones. That's it? Yeah. That's all. Sorry.
1: That's all it comes with.
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to another classic, but going even further back for 1928 to The Cameraman, directed by Edward Sedgwick. But we don't know who that is, but we do know who Buster Keaton is. Weirdly uncredited in this film, despite the fact that he was already a big star. And this was his first film with MGM. Definitely considered to be the best of the MGM films, and... Maybe the last important, definitely the last important film that Buster Keaton ever made. In fact, MGM just basically completely took over his creative control, bit by bit, slowly relegated him to more of a side player until he was a bit player to literally he was just making cameos. He called it later the worst mistake of his whole career coming to work for them. But this is the Criterion release of this. And I got to say, this is well worth it. I'm a big Buster Keaton fan, as is Jackie Chan. (laughs) <laughs> uh he plays a tin type portrait photographer in New York City who develops a crush on Madel uh Marceline Day who's a secretary who works at MGM. He wants to get closer to her. He wants to inc- be better at his job, so he buys an old film camera, so which spends all his money and is really awkward and he can't quite get a hold of the how the tripod works. Because he wants to go work for MGM so he can be closer to her. Uh Everyone who works at MGM is kind of making fun of him. He's kind of uh, including Harold Goodwin, who plays Harold, who is a cameraman who's, who wants to do Sally himself, constantly mocking him. But he... Keeps trying to do the right thing. He Keeps trying to be the guy who's going to get that exclusive footage of stuff. And so what you get is a series of set pieces, including some really funny stuff in Chinatown during the outbreak of a Tong war with him accidentally getting amazing footage of this war breaking out. But this is, like I said, a series of goofy set pieces with Keaton doing what Keaton does, which is incredible stunt comedy performances. I don't think this is anywhere near Keaton's best film. The it is, general. It is, is the
1: monkey's best film
0: it's the monkey and the organ grinder monkeys best it's film.
1: his best film that i it may be the best primate uh acting i've ever seen in anything the monkey was doing things where i was like how would you even tell a monkey to do that like i get that they're trained but how would you even like how We're do like you even people. convey yeah it's unnerving in this movie how much like a little person the monkey is in this film <laughs> Uh, this is great. This is really this is really enjoyable. And I'm not like a uh I've probably seen the general uh and I've seen General's the train one. What's the what's the house one?
0: Oh, um I'm blanking on the name of it, but I, the one where the house falls on yeah. the, the front of the so house. I've falls seen on. those two and that's it. Yeah.
1: Like I've seen General and, and I've seen both of those in their entirety. Other than that, my my exposure to Buster Keaton is Pretty limited. I've seen Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> as we just talked about. Who has like a cameo in uh, in Sunset Boulevard? I've seen. Have you
0: not seen Sherlock Junior?
1: I've seen Sherlock, one. A funny thing great. happen on the way to the forum. So I've seen like some talky stuff, but as classic stuff, I've only seen like two movies. And then now, uh, Cameraman, which I which I really did enjoy. It it is sort of built kind of set piece by set piece, um, and each set piece sort of builds towards toward its own sort of crescendo and then kind of goes on to the next scene a little bit of glue in between to kind of keep the story moving along mm-hmm. but this was really it was really a uh a still an enjoyable funny uh funny movie i you know you brought up the mgm stuff i don't always dip into the special features uh on the criterion stuff that we get for the show if i if i own it then i typically will explore that kind of stuff but Um, I did happen to watch the documentary on this, which was, uh, hosted by James Caron and kind of a warts and all look at that relationship between MGM and Keaton in a way that surprised me, frankly, because I feel like a lot of special features. This one, I think originally aired on, um, Turner movie classics or something like that. So it was made for broadcast or cable TV. It looked like maybe in the nineties. And, uh, it was, uh, it did not paint a pretty picture and i was a little surprised that there was like they made a doc that was a whole hour dedicated to uh the bad relationship between Keaton and and MGM which a lot of it was built around the fact that MGM execs demanded scripts full scripts be written and it's hard to they Keaton was not in the habit of writing his gags out as scripts as no. and even then if he did write them for MGM what would consume 15 to 20 minutes of a movie would be one page that he was handing off. And so they were like, no, no, it needs more, like write more to it. And especially as they made the move to sound, they wanted him to tell more jokes and do less physical bits, which was his strength. Um, it was a very unflinching, um, then it had, it had archival interview with, with Keaton in, in the doc. It's a very unflinching doc and, and really, uh, I watched it the right way, which to me was like hot off of watching the cameraman. Like immediately mm-hmm. when cameraman ended, I put it on and then was given all this context for everything that I had no idea about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really, really liked this. Like uh, now, more, more this, than I thought I would.
0: This actually comes with as well in the bonus features, the mm-hmm. film he made after this, which I, despite it not performing anywhere near as well as the cameraman did, it's called spite marriage, but it was the next film he did for MGM. Uh, I thought was quite good as well. I, I, thoroughly enjoyed it it's a 2k re- restoration of the film uh which also uh can be viewed with a commentary i did not it with the commentary, but i it's uh his last silent film before they forced him to fully go on to talkies, which, like you just said did not actually work as well and one of the interesting things about this one as well is like a lot of the gags from it mm-hmm. ended up becoming more famous in other people's movies uh Red Skelton, for instance, another m g m star like just a few years later, it just took almost shot for shot some of the gags from this movie and some of the gags from the cameraman and redid them completely. for those later movies so interesting in and of that sense but i think both these films are well worth your time
1: yeah i would say that if there's anybody because i see this call out on social media sometimes on twitter or facebook where people are like i want to watch a silent movie and i don't really know where to start or what's good or i think this is very accessible even in 2020 like it's very it's it's simple it's funny it's not boring um I think I think I would strongly recommend this to anybody that has an interest in the in the silent era of of filmmaking.
0: Uh this Criterion version also comes with a optional new score by composer Timothy Brock uh which is uh which was performed in 2020 so brand new. A lot of these silent films they often have an alternative musical soundtrack to it a modern one uh it's okay it's it's fine either way there's uh you t- we talked about the documentary there so funny it hurt there 's also a new documentary time Travelers, which talks as well about buster keaton 's career in the production of the cameraman there's James L. niebauer. I have no idea if I'm saying that right, who wrote The Fall of Buster Keaton, his films for MGM, Educational Pictures in Columbia. There's The Motion Picture Camera, which is an archival documentary, which takes is a history of the motion picture camera, which was just restored in 4K. Uh, There is a archival audio commentary for this by the author of A to Z of Silent Film Comedy recorded in 2004. And there's a 40 page booklet in here featuring Man with a Movie Camera by Imogen Sarah Smith and The Worst Mistake of My Life. By Buster Keaton and Charlie Samu- Samuels, which is obviously about him going to MGM.
1: Did you watch the, uh was it called Time Traveler?
0: I did. Piece? Okay. Yeah, I, I you know. I watched that sorry. too. It was
1: like two guys that were like going around LA like, this used to be that. This used to be that. <laughs> like, <laughs> two two buddies.
0: I don't always have time to watch all the bonus features and stuff, but I find that like with the classic early films i tend to want to go through and watch them all because it's just it's just so long ago it's such a piece of history Mm. and often there's whole discoveries of shit i just didn't know about at all that are are very enlightening about the history of uh, cinematography about filmmaking and about icons like buster keaton so yeah fully recommend this one as well wow we're two for two john do you think we can keep this up No? Okay, well, then I'm (laughs) guessing that you didn't like our next film as much as I did, because I really did enjoy, God help us for the title, but Boy. Uh (laughs) I saw it at Fantastic Fest last year. Okay, so this is a movie that, just from the title alone, you can tell is not going to be for everyone. (laughs) I mean, I got the feeling when I was reading the description of this, like, okay, so this is going to be like either really... Tim and ericky which I can't stand, or it's going to be very early trauma, which I'm not a huge fan of either. Well, the good news is I didn't think it was really either one of those things. It's kind of its own deal. It's not anywhere... is Most of its grossness is just in your head, like of you imagining stuff. It doesn't go for the big gross out, generally speaking, and that's hard to do, considering that the story of this film is this guy who discovers accidentally when he goes to, he lives a boring life and full of no passion. And he, he realizes after going and getting a colonoscopy that he really likes things being put up his butt and he starts, things start disappearing around him because he's putting them up his butt. And after sort of a brief distance in the film, we discover that he has learned how to suck things that are impossible to put up your butt up his butt, including entire people And basically becomes kind of a serial killer, but who is opening up his butt like a massive vortex and sucking other human beings he doesn't care for into it. And he follows the, the police guy who's chasing him. And it's a really quick run. It goes by pretty damn fast. And I gotta admit, this for me, it's absurd, but it plays it so straight the entire time that I couldn't believe it. I was constantly about, how are you playing this straight? And it works. And like I said, from my viewpoint, I actually thought this was a riot. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I, this was a very fantastic fest to me. And I realized yeah. it played the festival, but it feels it feels reverse engineered to exist only in the realm of like midnight slots at genre festivals like it's very um it's so specifically for that audience that it it has a oddly inorganic feel to me like it it's weird to see somebody create what i sense is a product for for that specific type of festival screening
0: it sounds like Um, you're saying it's up its own ass
1: Maybe I am <laughs> Um It, it kind of has its one joke, which is, yeah, uh, it's a cat and mouse serial killer. Not a serial killer. A cat and mouse uh, uh, yeah. kidnapper um, detective story where it happens to be that the kidnapper is putting things into his butt. It has that one sort of joke to it, but the movie's not necessarily funny outside of the overall premise being a joke. Um, And that's either funny to you or kind of like, at some point, because there is really nothing else to it and it is kind of played straight, I was left wanting more to it. I was left kind of going like, I I knew sitting down what it was already about. Um, And so that's what it was. It is, it's the Space Jam of uh, of <laughs> Butt Boy movies. If you hear, oh, the Looney Tunes play uh, basketball with Michael Jordan, and that's what Space Jam is, and there's really nothing else in the movie but that log line. Butt Boy, to me, was that, except it doesn't have Looney Tunes or Michael Jordan. It has a guy putting things in his rectum. Um, <laughs> but it was that. It was literally, like, as advertised. It was what was on the box. I can't fault it for that. It is what it is. I don't even, I mean... It was, I I, I don't think any of the filmmaking on display is like trash or that the movie is garbage or anything like that, but it was very much like a thing where I was surprised that there were no surprises. I was surprised that everything was just sort of exactly what I pictured in my head, which was sort of the trailer and, and the synopsis writ large, you know, in an hour and a half form. Um... Which is fine i it's obvious that it's not gonna be for everybody. It's called butt boy, it's about a <laughs> guy putting things in his butt, I mean, but I was game I was game to watch it i- mean none of the none of the ads or or scuttle butt coming out of the fest turned me off of it scuttle butt scuttle butt boy ho <laughs> ho um
0: I had no choice, Johnny I I yeah, no choice.
1: thank you um, but ultimately, in the end uh I did not uh hey and <laughs> uh I did not. Uh, I I don't think it did anything for me. It didn't bring anything else to the table.
0: Okay. It wasn't like you felt too seen. No. (laughs) No. Me me neither. When I went and got my first colonoscopy, I'm like, oh, shit, I have to keep coming back and doing this? This is not good. This doesn't bode well for my twilight years. So (laughs) a lot of butt poking I did not ask for or enjoy. Not that there's anything wrong with that, unless you are actually sucking whole human beings up your butt, in which case you should probably, I don't know.
1: I'd be really interested to see what this guy does as far as, uh, is he American or is he Canadian? Do we know?
0: I don't Ty- know. Tyler Cornack is his name. Who, who also plays the lead character, <laughs> or the lead antagonist, if you will.
1: I'd be interested to see if this guy is sort of a, uh, an English-speaking Quentin Dup- Dupoe, is that the guy's name? The, yeah. the guy like that did rubber. Um, right. This is kind of in the vein of those. I think um, Dupont. I don't know if I'm butchering his last name or not. I, I think his movies are a little more esoteric than this. This is actually, strangely enough, more accessible because it follows the beats of like a regular cat and mouse detective movie. Like it. It follows those beats. I'd be curious yep. to see what this guy does next, if only to, if only to see if this is. Like, it could be that he has a future in, in high concept one joke movies, or it could be that he was sound enough and bold enough of a filmmaker to go, I know how to nail this movie, that then he produces other imaginative, really cool movies. And I'm curious to see what what happens after Blood
0: Boy. This does feel like one of those things that's like a bet that someone, like, succeeded at. They're like, okay, we're like, we come up with the dumbest concept for a movie, and then the other guy's got to make it, like, one drunken night. I kind of want to see that movie. <laughs> About that The night. making
1: of Butt Boy? The,
0: the, the gothic of, of Butt Boy, you know? And <laughs>
1: what if he just does genre mashups, but they're always, like, anal-centric? Like, he does a Western <laughs> next, and, like, it's this whole his whole run of work after this is just, like, it's He's... always just a regular movie, but... Someone does something
0: with their butt. He uh, previously worked on a show called uh, Tiny Cinema that it looks like he directed all three seasons of it and wrote all three seasons that also co-starred Tyler Rice, who played the cop in this movie. I do not know if that is American or Canadian or what either, but I was not familiar with that show. It's like nightmarish comedy, Mm. whatever that means. But, But boy, split results here, split right down the middle, if you will. it was cheeky it was let's (laughs) move on to our next one which is not cheeky it is enter the forbidden city sound of thunder and lightning enter forbidden city is an odd choice for a huge american push this movie which is about the historical origins of the peking opera in china it's so it's a Chinese period drama that's very elegant, that's very like, let's just pay the costumer and the set designer, whatever the fuck they want to do this, set 200 years ago during the Qing Dynasty, was pushed very hard for an American theatrical release. And I'm kind of baffled by that. Uh, this is written by the guy who wrote The Grandmaster, which I, which also got a huge push for American release. And I, I did enjoy that one quite a bit, although also saw why it didn't connect with American audiences that much. Mm-hmm. This one, I'm like, who is making these decisions? Because I watch a lot of Chinese films and I understood what this was talking about. But even so went, I don't know anybody this is going to really super connect with.
1: It was not a, uh, it's 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 very middle of the road. It's, it is opulent. It's a very gorgeous mm-hmm. movie. And honestly, like maybe one of the best looking Blu-rays I think you've ever passed along to me to watch it looked so good and and all the set design and period costumes and everything is like gorgeous the movie is about these two actors um who are both kind of on the outs in different ways one of them uh ran off with a girl he wasn't supposed to run off with the other one was shut down by the government because of obscenity charges which may or may not be false and they both both of these people get the chance to perform opera in front of the emperor and i felt like the movie didn't give you a lot of it's it almost had like a surface like it's so funny to compare this to like a lifetime movie but it almost had that sort of like very surface very shallow just like kind of going from point a to point b but you never really had an understanding of of the importance of them going in front of the emperor. You never really had a handle on what they did wrong, or why they were supposedly disgraced. Yes, There was a yes. lot of talking about things, but not a lot of showing of things. So people would have discussions about things that, I have to guess, either A, if you're Chinese, you have a lot of historical context for us, so there was no need to show them, or B, um, they're just, I, I lost my A and B. A, and two, <laughs> um, and the other, or the other being that just they, they're talking about stuff more than they're showing us stuff. We're not seeing these things. There's conversations about, oh, uh, he was brought up on the vicinity charges, and it was actually his competition who wanted to shut him down. And I'm like, why didn't I see any of that? Like, right. why are you telling me this? You have a movie. Like, you and could have shown me that.
0: There's somebody for a movie that, like, like I said, is they're trying so hard to say, well, this is a great movie for Americans to get a picture of the Chinese culture. It doesn't explain any of that. There's lots of stuff you're like, wait, what? Like, there's a whole subplot where he's like in love with this girl, and she's like, Ew, gross. You're an actor? That's disgusting. You're like the lowest class of citizen. So he, you should come be a sexy <laughs> farmer.
1: It, so he poisons <laughs> I mean, her and takes her against her will, and he's like yep. the hero of the movie. It's very. It's like
0: <laughs> it do, does not translate on. Any level, and there's also a weird cinematography choice that kept bugging me, where the director keeps choosing to choose, choose freeze frames oh. in places that it doesn't make any sense to choose shoot a freeze frame for a second, but it'll freeze and then it'll go again, and then, it freeze, and it goes and then it freezes, I have my own it freezes, like what?
1: I had my own, and that was overhead shots. Uh, so it's like, in order to just change camera angles, almost every scene has an overhead shot.
0: Yeah, the crane shot where
1: it's like directly on top down view of whatever is going on, whether it's people having a conversation or like it doesn't matter what it is. Almost everyone has like an overhead shot. And I was like, what? What's the deal with all these (laughs) overhead shots?
0: I mean, Um, they all when they do them, they look gorgeous. And they're great establishing shots to show. Look at this fucking amazing place that we built slash computer generated. Sometimes, Yeah. yeah. You know, I I actually had a hard time telling what was real and what was CG with that sort of thing. So they obviously spent a lot of money on trying to get that right. And they did get that right. But the story is, is hard to crack or get into. The characters are inaccessible. There's a lot of beautiful imagery on site, but that is shot annoyingly by the director more often than not. This is, I don't understand why this has gotten as strong reviews as it has as some, because it really feels like a lot of the fault is firmly on the screenwriter and director who, if their intent was to make this for a foreign audience, put no effort into making it even faintly translatable. And I can't imagine that a lot of the Chinese people who are watching this found it completely great either. I don't know. I, th- I mean, I'm not Chinese. I can't say.
1: I think the giveaway is in the first title card, the first production title card which comes up, which was, we we see films subsidized by, like, Canada, and and, you know, we've seen Chinese films that are subsidized by the government. This one seemed almost exclusively, like there was a huge logo and a banner thing that said, made by the you know, blah, 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 commission of film in the Chinese Republic of it, I was like, okay. And that kind of, you see that at the start of the film, it's sort of like, am I about to see, you know, we we understand there's like a lot of rules, like from what, from what I know, based on, you know, a, a Fantastic Fest movie from a couple of years ago called No Man's Land, police mm-hmm. aren't allowed to be portrayed in a negative light. So there's a lot of like censorship laws that relate to this stuff. And especially with it being the government's movie, like the government's movie, that maybe that's the reason that they wanted it to be like a big overseas hit, or maybe that's what they look for to send overseas more than more than stuff that's homegrown and subsidized, mm-hmm. but stuff that's actually like, you no, know, the government paid for this film, so they want other countries to see this film. I would imagine that's the case with something like this, but I'm pretty ignorant. And I guess I could ask my buddy James Marsh. He would probably know, but I didn't ask him. So I'm going to be an ignorant person.
0: Name drop.
1: <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and be like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what the deal is, but I, it could be.
0: Yeah. And all we can say is there's a lot visually going on here. It's a, it's a cool subject. It's just not easy to crack. And there's a few extras, but they're just trailers pretty much. It's Cinema Libre Studio which I believe might be relatively new. Uh, The one thing I will say, and this is directed specifically at Cinema Libre Studio, guys, you used tiny white, no drop shadow subtitles Mm -hmm. uh, that faded into the image a lot. What are you doing? We've known not to do that for like 30 years now. Like, oh, there is a yellow subtitle track with Bigger. It's the one that was added as descriptive for the hard of hearing. So if you turn that on, it'll be like loud bang <laughs> in yellow. And that looks great. But the the text subtitles are horrifically bad. Like the worst I've seen in years. They're
1: very, very small. I, f- I found, I didn't find the white on white as big of a problem as the actual size. I mean, I've got you know, we both have glasses on, but I was sitting there going like, that's really tiny.
0: Well, let's move on to our next film, which is, it's from Germany, right? hmm The Tobacconist? Yes. The Tobacconist. It's, it's my favorite bac- superhero.
1: <laughs> Don't fear, the Tobacconist is here.
0: I just picture, like, he's an ad in the middle of the original run of the Flintstones cartoon. Have a windstone! Mm-hmm. Still cracks me up. That was ever a thing. So uh, this is yet another let's take a historical character and insert them into a plot of a historical movie to add some, I don't know, viewers. (laughs) Uh, This case, it's Sigmund Freud. Uh This takes place in Vienna, where he obviously lived at at the early to mid 20th century uh, when the Germans were taking over bit by bit largely the story here is about how insidious that to sort of takeover is how people who seemed who once seemed normal and nice suddenly start to reveal that they will throw you completely under the bus if it means they don't get in trouble it's all too familiar and timely i suppose and freud who himself was jewish but very famous at this point was a little harder for the Germans to move in on immediately, but the story follow, Oh, by the way, this is the last film of famous actor, Bruno Ganz before he died, who plays in fact, something in Freud, but it follows a young guy named Franz Simon Morse, has been sent off to the big city to get a job. uh, And he works for, I think it's his uncle. Who owns this tobacco shop? Who it's a,
1: it's his wife. It's not his wife. It's his mother's former lover.
0: Oh, is that yeah? Is yeah, that what, it's,
1: I, yeah, it's his it's his mom's ex. Somebody she had a fling with back in the day, and okay. she remained friendly friendly with.
0: So uh, he himself is a World War One vet. He only has one leg; his artificial leg. And they become friends. He's not like uh, this scenario made me think. Oh, this is going to be one of those. Oh, he's an abusive piece of shit. But he's a nice guy. Uh, he. Is a little standoffish of the whole situation, but also draws a line at a certain point that he will not carry this anti-Jewish propaganda newspaper that is starting to make the rounds everywhere there. Uh he sells porno on the side. You know, porno at this point is like it's quaint. <laughs> you know, it's it's cheesecake photos stapled together. But you watch, like listen, the growing Nazi menace. You watch the boy get a big crush on this local girl who is an import herself who lives in poverty and is forced to turn to she i mean she's a she's a singer, but she's also clearly a prostitute but you watch him have sort of his sexual awakening through here her but also his realization that not everyone is what they seem, and that life is going to be a lot darker than maybe you originally thought it was <laughs> so This is a slow, long film with some solid performances and a great picture of Vienna at this period. But there was a point I was just ready for this to wrap up.
1: What's, like, doesn't it feel like something you've seen before? The only thing I could name was uh, The Reader, where you have this movie that's about, like, oh, the rise of the Nazis and somebody, some boy's sexual awakening at the same time. And I feel like that's, like... Even though I can only name one, I feel like this is a movie I've seen literally dozens of times, where it's like, oh, the Nazis are coming into power, and I don't know what to do with all this horniness. Like, like, like <laughs> I, I, does it not
0: feel like something you've seen before? <laughs> they should change the tide the blurb cover for that. The Nazis are coming into power, and I don't know what to do with all this horniness. The tobacconist. <laughs>
1: I feel like I've seen this and I don't know what it is I mean and really the only thing that signifies any real difference is like Superfluous which is the addition of Sigmund Freud who I think is really like kind of just it's like dressing like it doesn't really have figure into the story really doesn't really have anything I mean he kind of has he, he has conversations with our character Franz but it's sort of like He's not intrinsic to the story. Like it's one of those okay. movies where Freud could be removed from the movie, and you have the same movie, which is really about um, uh, like Nazis coming into power and this kid sort of having a first hand seat to it happening. I don't yeah, think the a, addition of Freud adds anything.
0: He's eventually a mentor character to the kid, but uh, yeah. only a little. Like they could have easily made the guy who owned the shop that character and just kind of reversed the the way in which the, the mentorship was happening in the terms of the, the the timing of the film. He's also sort of like the representative symbol for how bad it was getting with Germany that even a super famous guy like Sigmund Freud at that point was in trouble and they would be coming for him. He sort of focuses as sort of like the final timeline of when, oh, shit, had gotten that bad when even Freud had to run. But you're right none of that is really super pertinent in and of itself to the story. It's just sort of markers for the timeline.
1: Yeah. I, I liked this in a, in a lower lowercase, lowercase L liked it. Yeah. I, uh, I I think it's good. I And, but it's not great. And it also is one of those movies that I think looks worse in the rearview mirror than when you're watching it. I think when you're watching it, you're cutting it a lot of slack because it's polished enough where you're like, okay, okay. Like it is, it, there's, some memorable scenes and there's all these dreamlike you see into the character's mind and he constantly pictures himself as being submerged in water. Like internally, Mm -hmm. he feels like he's drowning. So that's made visual on the screen. So there's some interesting visuals, but then I think it's one of those things where, where by the time it concludes and the way it concludes, you're sort of going like, was that, was that it? Like that's, that's the movie. And I and I think those movies sour more in the rearview mirror, even if they're even if they are quote unquote good movies. You look yeah. back on them and you don't have like, oh, that was really good. You don't have like great feelings about it. You kind of have like,
0: it was okay feelings about it. Yeah, because no, it doesn't
1: I, leave you with any any. It doesn't leave you with any like. You don't feel like you went on a journey or connected anybody or learned anything or were thrilled in any way. It's just sort of like you watched it unfold and then it ended and you got up and went about your day.
0: Yeah. I did my laundry, I thought about the tobacconist for a minute. Oh yeah, I did just watch that movie. Okay, what's next?
1: So there's still room for someone to remake this as a superhero movie is what I'm saying.
0: (laughs) There's still a serve, although I don't know where you would market that. I mean, it sounds like the villain, right? You're like the tobacconist. It's like the next Avengers villain, you know, because you can't build. You can't go right to Kang. You can't go immediately to Kang. We need to
1: make America great again. And to do that, we need to start with the things that made America great. And that's fine Virginia tobacco.
0: Yeah, that's true. That is fair. Yeah. let's. uh, I mean, uh, now that the government's policy is... Well, I mean, you're clearly weak if you died, so. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: It's all about the economy, baby. All about the economy. Couldn't I will handle their say, smoke. Of which this film had very little economy. It goes on way too long and there's way too much stuff going on that you don't really need to be in there. But I did like a lot of the visual sense of it. It was very well shot. I know that sounds like saying like, oh, but she's so nice. But like, no, it really is kind of beautiful to look at especially like the dream sequences and the underwater sequences they do add something to it that feels like it's going to be more important than it actually ends up being Uh but yeah very mixed reviews about the tobacconist well i'll tell you what john we're at like about 46 minutes so we are going to call this a separate Digital Noise episode.
1: Okay.
0: (laughs) And we're going to wrap this one up for this particular session. John and I, John, will return in Digital Noise Part 2 versus the Tobacconist. (laughs)
1: The Marlboro Man versus the Tobacconist.
0: (laughs) But yeah, our next round, this was all like kind of You know, either classic stuff or stuff set in older times, except for Butt Boy. I guess that counts as older times when we used to make more butt jokes when we were kids. Uh (laughs) But we have a weirder, wilder collection of our next one that I think y'all will be really excited to see some of the strange stuff we have to cover. So tune in in a few days when we bring you Digital Noise episode 261. Yes, 261. I have to remember with Chris and John Golson.